good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Albert Holder, who appeared in the Journey Home program this last Monday night. Uh, Albert, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Thank you, Marcus. It's good to have you here. Albert is a, a former member of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and on the Monday night program he had a uh, it's been a good chunk of time, uh, I guess, at my encouragement to uh, distinguish between the different movements of, of Mormonism. And I don't know if that'll come up during this program, but this particular <clears throat> uh, radio program is, in, in essence, a, a follow-up to the Journey Home program. When we did the program Monday night, uh, you didn't have much opportunity to go through some of the scriptures that were important to you for your journey, and, and that's what we'd like to do here. On this program, <clears throat> and just a little background for those of you who didn't watch the journey home. Though I still encourage you to go to EWTN.com. You can watch the program, the journey home program, or you can catch it at its rebroadcast um, time zone, uh, time slots. Albert grew up the son of a missionary of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, now called the Community of Christ Church. You know, Albert, I've not heard that. I've not seen a community of. I don't think so. I'll have to look around next time I'm aware of it. Uh, those of you listening, what the community of Christ Church is, it's the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They've changed their name, and which is also reflecting some of the changes of ideals. Certainly, certainly. In, in the direction it wants to go in the wider Christian community. Albert uh, grew up. Uh, as a, as I said, a son of a missionary. His family lived through the Southwest and in Brazil. His father worked to set up missions in these various places. 1989, after careful study and prayer, Albert's father entered the Catholic Church and the rest of his family did likewise in the following years, although Albert was screaming and kicking his feet, right, for <laughs> <laughs> holding off. He was the second to the last member of the family to convert to this in the spring of 1993. Albert graduated from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, the Angelicum, and is an attorney for Omera Ferguson Financial Consulting Firm, which works with Catholic dioceses and institutions. He has experience as a director of religious education and serves as the chairman to the U.S. Board of an international charity called Mary's Meals. He holds bachelor's and master's degree in theology from Francis University of Steubenville, an SDL in moral theology from the Angelicum, and a J.D. from the Ave Maria School of Law. He lives in Ann Arbor with his wife, Michelle, and their three children. So, Albert, welcome back to the program. Um, I, did you get both your undergrad and your master's at Steubenville, or just your master's, right? No, I got both there. I transferred there as a junior, so I had done some studies elsewhere, but uh, finished up my undergrad at, at, at Franciscan. And you were there at least a, a little while before you came into the church, right? I had I had arrived in the fall of ninety two and okay. uh, and within a few months made the decision to become Catholic and entered in, entered that spring. All right, for those of you listening, again, I encourage you to go to the Journey Home Program and get the full journey in your faith. Now, the scriptures you've chosen, you, you've chosen a handful, um, which is great because they all connect with your journey. Yes, yes. In fact, um, uh, I think as we go through the list of. Um, the the ones taken from uh, from Acts uh, are kind of of the same, and even Second Timothy are, are kind of of the same theme. So I might kind of treat those together. But All right. um, shall we get into them? Or yeah, yeah. Maybe in general, are these what we've done in the on the Deep in Scripture program is what we call verses we never saw, or verses that maybe we were aware of but saw them in a different light, or verses we just didn't see. Do these qualify kind of that for you? Definitely. Definitely. Because maybe the audience don't realize this. As a Mormon, you did hold in your hands the Bible. I, I did, yes, and uh, was uh, fairly familiar with it. Um, uh, but I think these these particular passages were were ones that I had to, I guess, put them in themes. It's you know Mary, sure. uh, the Eucharist, and then uh, sacred tradition are sort of the three things that I wanted to touch on that, which are major uh, non-Catholic ideas uh, for someone who came up in a, in a Mormon uh, religion. So it was very important. Uh, and had read those passages before, but never had read them in the light of kind of their true meaning. Sure. All right. Well, let's take this first one, John 2, 5. 
Um, and it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So you had no theology of that particular verse as a Mormon? None at all. Uh, and of course, as you know, that that's the end of the the story where Jesus was at the wedding feast and um, they've run out of wine. And so um, at the prompting of Mary, um, she she says to the servants, you know, you know, ask Jesus to, you know, you know, let him know what the problem is. And, right. and, uh, and then, uh, you know, he, he says to her, you know, it's not my hour. My hour hasn't yet, yet come. And, and, and then she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you, um, as if she's almost not listening to what Jesus is saying. So it's an interesting dynamic. But I, I remember the first time that it really um, struck me. I was, I was um, as I mentioned on the Monday show, I was in the middle of my um, that portion of my conversion where I was sort of um, being attracted to God again through, uh, through poetry and through that class with that um, professor who was uh, teaching um, – who was a Catholic professor at a at a state university uh, teaching a class? Uh, who was doing his work on Cardinal Newman, um, and I, I had met a fellow student. Uh, I think um, it was either through my brother or through this professor, uh, and she was a Catholic. And um, I had at this point, my dad had been a Catholic for a couple of years, and and so we had kind of done you know some of the standard sparring over certain things. And, and Mary was a a, a very very big topic and you know i'm 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 certain that uh, we had gone through this verse a number of times but you know as you probably know you you certainly have a there's a certain way in which until until faith touches your heart and you you don't really hear it and um, i remember just i was in in a different setting and i was talking to this young woman she was catholic um and she knew that my dad had become a Catholic, and she knew sort of the story of the family, and and she was explaining to me Mary and what her role was, and just very naturally, she said, you know, it's it's like it says in, in John, you know, in John John chapter two, and I'm like, what is she talking about? You know? <laughs> and so she's, you know, we're just turning to her and and doing we're doing exactly what the servants did, we're we're, we're petitioning her, and and she's basically saying, you know. Do whatever he tells you, and that's her intercession. That's her intercessory prayer. Is that she will lead us into that sort of that moment in my own conversion. So that was the beginning of those uh, <laughs> scales, if you will, falling. Um, and it was, and I was sharing this over um, with one of your colleagues out when we were offline from the show last last Monday. Uh, when I when I first got to Steubenville and was uh, before I was uh, had made the decision to be Catholic. I um, was a lot of questions going through my mind, and I think I mentioned that toward the end of the show. Uh, and it was this um, met two very uh, devout uh, Catholics who they prayed the Rosary every day, and they invited me to start praying the Rosary with them. And I I wasn't really sure yet whether I <laughs> bought into it, but I was on my way, and so I was willing to sort of suspend my suspicions and then I felt like okay well I'm not praying to her like God and you know I kind of got got it down this was you know she was just a powerful intercessor but I hadn't had any real experience with Mary or any real connection to you know who she was and it was during the course of those the really that six months mm-hmm. and this gets back to the thing I left with on Monday um, all these questions in my mind and going up uh, there's a big Steel steel cross uh, on the top of the hill at, at on campus. That's right. At three o'clock every day, that first year that I was there, we would go and pray the rosary, and we would walk up that hill. And there was a one of my friends that I met there. He was very, he was a Protestant convert, and he was very still very struggling with a certain mindset of of how to handle truth in mm-hmm. in a different in a Catholic way. And so he even though he was he was converted. I mean, he was going to, you know, he's a Catholic. He was still struggling with some of the doctrines of the church. And uh, and I remember we would go up there and we'd pray the rosary. And this incredible peace would come down and I, uh, on us. And I remember thinking, the, the, the one sense that I kept getting back from the Lord, and I think it was really because Mary was leading me in this pursuit of truth in this new way, was that it doesn't depend on me. You know, and and your colleague uh, um, Kevin said on uh, Monday. He said it, it's not so important that we're that we possess the truth. Is that the truth possesses us? Hmm. 
and it and that was that was what she was doing she was really teaching me how to pray uh and do whatever he says and put everything on him and that's the power of her intercession so started you know you know what started that passage started the first time that was probably 91 and it really was you know 93 uh two years kind of that person saying that and then reading in that new life and then beginning to pray the rosary over that that first year before i was catholic that was there's a tv show that my my boys sometimes like to watch about America's Funniest Home Videos. You know, they're just a long... People send in their goofy things that happen in their families. And once in a while, one of the short videos that they'll show from time to time, they'll they'll tell the audience, now don't look at the 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 part of the video that's most obvious to you, whatever's happening in front. He'll say, now the thing that's really funny is what's happening in the back. So like the video will be taking a picture of of a wedding happening and everything's going fine, except way in the back somebody walks through and is not paying attention and runs into a wall or something. So there's the funny thing way in the back, but you don't see it because you're focusing on the front. So it depends on what your focus is, whether that is funny or just a regular photo. And I think of this story, there's a number of layers in this story that maybe you as even as a Mormon, I mean, this talks about making more wine. Yeah. So that's a problem for Mormons. Right. <laughs> right. You know, how do you how do you deal with interpreting this story when he didn't just make grapefruit, grape juice, right. he made the best wine? Well, as a Protestant, I only looked at this passage with, this is Christ's first miracle that was the point of this passage the part about mary just never i never saw either because it wasn't up front it was a, a seemingly a back un, insignificant it could have been mary detail. a detail you know maybe could have been mary magdalene or could have been anyone else well right i mean in this case it was mary but it, who what difference would it make if maybe it was john saying just do everything he says or maybe it never struck us that no 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 this is one of the key parts of the story Mm-hmm. But because of where we were coming from, we just didn't see it. And, I mean, the significance of that, do whatever he tells you is her mediation, intercessoring for for us, but then she also has a message to us, is to obey her son, to follow her son, and not her. I mean, there's the point for anyone that thinks that Catholics say, no, our focus is on Mary and not Jesus. She's saying, no, 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 no. Your focus is on him and not me. So we go through her to him. Definitely. Which, which I'm sure was still a struggle for you. It doesn't happen overnight, right, when you first become open to the reality of our intercessor. No, it, it doesn't happen overnight. But, um, but um, you know, we also, another thing that, that I learned uh, very quickly um, once I started, you know, you know, praying to Mary in that way is her her power of her intercession, and, and one of the titles of Mary, of course, is the seat of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, it's hard to describe, but um, um, the, the 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 mental shift in in thinking about um, God and and how He relates to us, and not, in other words, not. Um, Defining, not being the arbiter of who God is in in, in humanity, you know, and then I think we talked before about how that owning that truth is always sort of a a narrower and narrower proposition because somehow it just keeps getting smaller and smaller because, you know, as I said before, that that church and that organization just kept getting smaller and smaller, and it became up to us to determine, mm-hmm. you know, what is the truth, you know, you know, becoming the magisterium and you know the the, the definer of truth. And there's such a weight and sort of burden that that is, and um, there's a there's a total flip flip flop or flip over when when you recognize the truth is you know out there and it is what it is and God is not trying to um, you're not trying to define make God fit into your box but yep. you know uh, be possessed by by Him um, and Mary um, Mary is a, a really big part of that. Uh, that first year, especially, 
um, when there were so many questions initially about, and as you know, you know the mysteries of our faith are are you know you can there's no in some sense no plumbing plumbing them the depths of the mysteries because they're dealing with divine realities and so you you understand every time kind of in a newer or different level uh, and, and yet giving up or, or letting go of that need to to be the final arbiter of no this is where it stops this is what it means period full stop nothing more uh, God can't do more than this and say no no God is bigger than than that and I need to uh, grab hold of the truth and be possessed by it and and be a disciple mm-hmm. you know and not and not be um, you know not be something that we're not you know and and she uh, that was a, a really big part of that that first year of, of the daily rosary um, uh, it was a special time which I'm also guessing from your background there was nothing like rosary prayer no no um all spontaneous prayer um and uh which um they still do obviously mm-hmm. of course um but but nothing nothing like that um um i will say that during those years that before i was catholic that i did uh, out of a love for my brother who i had lived with I did do a lot of Catholic things. Uh, mostly, I, I didn't. I didn't do them out of my own faith, but I did that because he was married to a non-Catholic, and he wanted to be able to pray with someone. And he wanted to be able to go to church with someone. So I, even during those periods, those years prior to my own conversion, where I was pretty much, you know, religion was of man, and I didn't think any religion really had anything to offer. I was doing things and praying the Rosary, even, but. But my heart wasn't in it. At least, well, I don't. I have to say, I, I wasn't. Uh, um, I wasn't against it. So maybe, maybe God was, uh, you know, <laughs> using that in some way. But um, um, because I think my motive was simply to be a support to my brother, which uh, you know, God has ways of using even a, a natural love like that to bring about good well, things. I'm trying to imagine uh, if I were listening to this program back when I was a Presbyterian pastor. If there's a pastor listening, how they would be hearing some of the things you're saying or that I'm saying. And, you know, like, for example, did I as a Protestant minister think that, you know, that I held this truth, that I claimed it, like you were talking about? And and the truth is that when that really hit home is when we brought new members into our church. And all of a sudden we have ex-Methodists and ex-Mormons and ex-Episcopalians who are becoming Presbyterian and they're asking questions, why do you believe the way you do about about baptism or about something else? <clears throat> in the process, I'm having to, in my mind, define the Presbyterian understanding versus all the others. And so exactly right. We're, we're, we're capturing. We're, we got a hold of truth, and we think we've got it versus everyone else. And I think the beauty that I'm, I'm finding... In, in line with what you're saying, is that when we when we discover the beauty and the fullness of the church, it's a very um, uh, uh, releasing feeling. I can trust this church that Christ gave us and His apostles in union with Peter. But on top of that, it's not like all of a sudden I've discovered everything. It's this mysterious depth that can take us the rest of our life to fully understand. Another image I want to use before we move on, I know I've used this on the program before, so I apologize, but you're coming down from Ann Arbor, and not not far from you, there's a, a highway going north. I think it's 23 or, or 75, but just about south of Detroit, it divides, and one goes east and west towards Jackson, and the other one goes north towards Midland. And I remember when I used to make that trip when I worked for Dow up in Midland that if you're not paying attention, you can easily get on the wrong route. And one time I did and found myself all the way over in Jackson when I wanted to be in Midland. And in those days, you couldn't go from Jackson to Midland directly. You had to come all the way back and all the way up. And the reason I use that example is that, and I'm guessing this is true for you, Albert, is when you approach something like Mary, you approach her in the past with a long line of presumptions that you had picked up from your years as a Mormon. And from that perspective, it was hard to hear the Catholic perspective. 
but sometimes it's necessary to re-examine all that background so you can hear the Catholic message afresh and not just through the sieve of all your presumptions. And I'm thinking that's also true of the next passage we're going to look at, which is a different topic. Right. You, you chose John chapter 6, uh, 66 through 69, which <clears throat> those of you that are familiar with John chapter 6, this is that whole section about eat my body and drink my blood. Well, this is after that, after right. Jesus gives those statements. Right. And then the, the narrator, John, says, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Yeah, that was, um, I, again, had read that many times. Um, I didn't, uh, um, I think that this is the one that's the one that I connect mostly with my my oldest brother. Um, and uh, he, in his uh, journey into the church, he became convinced pretty early on. I think I mentioned before, he was the first to convert. He converted in about a year uh, after my dad had. So really, almost right away, he was going to Mass. I think I mentioned I had, my dad came into the church that spring. I graduated high school that summer and left home, uh, partly because I, I needed to get away from the kind of the turmoil that his conversion had caused, and moved up to find solace with my two older brothers who were in college. And when I got there, I, my oldest brother, within two months, was going to Mass. And at first it started out, as he said, he was curious to see what Dad was doing. Uh, but for him, almost immediately, he had a very strong um, um, desire for the Eucharist. There was something um, something that uh, touched him almost from the beginning. And um, he he and I would go round and round about the Eucharist and how could it really be the body and blood and and you know, I, I know I tried a, a lot of different ways to, you know, com- convince him otherwise, and we always came back to this. And he, he, he and we we would look at this, and and he would say, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus knew obviously what Peter and the others were thinking, and when he turns to them and says, "Will you also go away?" Um, and it's interesting. I always found it very interesting when it first kind of really hit home. Is that Peter doesn't say? Maybe it is the perfect answer because it is scripture. But <laughs> I could think of a better answer. You know, he could have said, uh, "No, Lord, you are. You know, I believe in the Eucharist, and you know, I you know, I believe perfectly." He says, "Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life." Um, and again, it was. It was, again, somewhat connected to what I've already said because it's kind of the same theme, which is we have to connect to Jesus as the source of of salvation and the source of all truth. Um, Now, obviously, behind that in this context is Jesus affirming the reality of his presence in the Eucharist after he had just spent the last discourse uh, kind of battling with the Jews about whether, in fact, it was... Um, you know, his body and blood, was it a symbol, was it, you know, a spiritual reality, you know. Uh, and, and you know, he, he doesn't back away from that. Uh, he doesn't back away from that, even though people left. And it doesn't just say people. It says yeah. some of his disciples left. So these were people that were following him. Maybe some of them had been cured of diseases, uh, had, you know, had been, um, had faith really touched their lives. <laughs> Uh, and yet they could not believe what he was saying. In fact, there are the other cases where he speaks in parables, like, let's say, the, the parable of the soils. And they say, hey, Jesus, can you tell us what you meant by that? And he says, well, the parables are for those people out here, uh, up right. there, and they're not going to understand for whatever reason. They're, you know, they have ears, but they won't hear. But for you, I've, I'm giving this explanation. He doesn't do that here. Right. You know, it's he, he says, that, I said what I said, basically. I meant what I meant. Are you going to go away too? And we, we're going to take a break when we come back with that, because I, I think that statement of Peter's is so key about trusting this church. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Albert Holder. We're looking at a number of scriptures that um, that were key to your own journey, Albert. Um, and you've chosen a bunch. We, do you want to comment a little bit more on John 6, or you want to move on to the First Timothy passage? Well, just in the John 6 passage, I mean, you know, you know Jesus, as we said, you know, he says, you know, um, turning to them and saying, do you, do you also want to go away? Um, and, and Simon says, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. <laughs> it, to me, to me, it, what the only thing I wanted just to say again is, is that it's Peter's response is um, right is the is at, at least at first glance, it's not the right response I would have given. Knowing all the theology I know now, um, <laughs> but it's the it's it's the right it is obviously the right response uh, in another way in the sense that he is responding uh, in faith and and, yep. and 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 reaching back out to the Lord and saying there is no other place to go. I mean, and uh, you know the, the the mysteries of our faith, including the, the Eucharist. Um, we're never going to um, we're never going to exhaust them with our mental meditations of them, our mental mm-hmm. ration, you know, uh, reflections of, uh, on them. Um, you know, you, you think of Aquinas. Um, you know, a um, couple of things from his life that are I think are very worth noting. The description of the intellect as and the wings of the intellect. You know, folding the folding the wings. You know, when it comes into the presence of mystery and the mystery of God, um, and then of course he himself, you know, after writing, you know, the Summa and everything else that he wrote, has that mystical encounter with the Lord in the Eucharist, and he is dumbfounded. And, and of course he says, you know, everything I've written is is so much straw compared to what that has been revealed to me. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's not straw. In one sense, it's beautiful what he wrote, but the reality of what what we're contemplating is so much bigger. And to me, that's what Peter is getting at. You know, I have to stay connected to the to the source of the mystery. And uh, when things don't make sense, and when I can't, they don't add up nicely in a two plus two equals four equation. 
there's no other I can only go yeah. back to my faith and say Jesus you are the source in, 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 uh, of the answer if you think about Peter there before our Lord before him was the second person of the Trinity before him was the divine Christ God man 100% God 100% man and Jesus had just spoken about the mystery of the Eucharist. So in that moment, Peter is confronted by three of the greatest mysteries that are beyond our ability to understand with our reason or to experience sensually. We can't see or hear, touch the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, or the reality of the Eucharist. They're beyond us. When we were non-Catholics, we thought, we, well, it's our responsibility to figure out what's true, and this is it, and... The beauty I found as a Catholic is we recognize this is not true because the church says it is. The church says it is because it's real. It's true. And now we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to understand that with God's wisdom. We'll probably still at the last minute of our life be like Thomas Aquinas saying, everything I've learned this whole 95 years, wherever I live, is straw compared to the beauty and the reality of the mysteries of God. And... Uh, and just as you said, that answer by Peter is exactly right. Um, which is interesting. It's not Lord. Um, he's not talking about a, a collection of data. He's talking about a person. Right. Jesus. He's talking about the reality of our Lord Jesus. Okay. Let's let's. There's more we could go on to that, of course. But let's look at First Timothy two three through four, which. Is a great book. There's a lot of things in First Timothy that, that opened my heart to the beauty of the church. In this particular case, uh, Paul says, This is good and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that a new one for you? Yes. The, the all part, that God desired all to be saved. Um, there's a couple of very unique doctrines in the Mormon uh, tradition. Uh, they're interpreted a little differently depending on where you are in the spectrum of Mormonism, but there's various, varying degrees of glory uh, based out of, I think it's in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one of the letters where he talks about the glory of the moon, the stars, and the sun. So that's kind of the proof text for them, but they take that and they you end up with those in the highest level of glory in celestial heaven enjoying the glory in the the presence of the Father, and then those in the glory of the the moon, uh, or or, excuse me, of the stars, enjoying the presence of of Jesus Christ, the Son, and then the lowest level of of the earth, uh, enjoying the the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so I always always thought, you know, God God was... um, it, it, it didn't. This didn't ring very true to that idea of a God who was drawing all people to salvation. Now, this can get interpreted in a variety of ways, and, and certainly, did Mormons have a, a different view of salvation anyway? Didn't they? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. salvation. Um, you, you have a whole, a whole, a whole period of time. Um, Jesus, there, uh, uh, they are. What they call millennialists, uh, Jesus comes back, reigns for a thousand years, um, and um, you know salvation is um, is is based on the knowledge that you had of uh, of the the truth of, of of who Jesus, as they said, who he revealed himself to be. Mm-hmm. But th- this passage for me w- was important because um, the. You know, God was. You know, I, I think of this, and then I, when I think, uh, I think it's in John's Gospel when Jesus opens his arms on the cross to draw all men to himself. So it's it's it, yeah. there's a connection there. Um, now, what we do on our part is 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 the answer, and it's imperfect, and it's not you know it's not always hundred percent. Right. But what it what it was telling me was is that God. God's plan to save was universal. I mean, he, he, he set out a plan. It's a specific plan, but he, his plan was to bring all people into the family of God. And when, you, when I 
when I not not into one family over here that got some of God, and then another family over here they got another bit more of God, but his family. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more it it, it uh, um, um, the more the church that I was in didn't fit that mold. Yeah. Um, I mean, the church has a lot of freckles and it has a lot of problems, right? I mean, we don't need to get into all those right now. But the one thing that is um, that you have to acknowledge, whether you're a Catholic or not, is the church is everywhere. She spans all cultures, and um, she is bringing the gospel to every land on this earth. And that was... um, kind of a powerful realization. Um, I remember um, I, I, when I was uh, in in college before, this is after my brother had become a Catholic, I had the opportunity to go to to go to Europe, uh, a URL pass, 15 days. Um, my brother was not Catholic. None of us were Catholic. My oldest brother had become Catholic, but these are the three younger siblings, my brother, my sister, and myself. And we... Um, we happened to be in Rome on a Wednesday. Now, three, you know, former reorganized Mormons in Rome on a Wednesday means absolutely nothing to us. I mean, we had no idea. <laughs> so there we are in St. Peter's Square, and there's a, a gazillion people. We have yeah. no idea what's happening. We still don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, someone comes out in a white car, and at this point, okay, you know, kind of figure it out. This is the Pope, and so we were there on a papal papal audience, and there he was. Uh, and just there, and even there, it's not. It doesn't typically, uh, you know. Now knowing what I know as far as the great diversity of the church, nonetheless, uh, there was and there must have been nine languages spoken during that audience. Uh, people from lands all over the world, and this was a common weekly occurrence. This wasn't some special event of the international gathering of Catholics. This was standard fare, and I remember thinking. If there's any church that's really going to sort of measure up to whatever it is that God was going to do, <laughs> this one, this one uh, had a really good chance to do it. Yeah. So, one of my first trips to Rome, I was at a breakfast, staying in a in a house, and there were priests and bishops and laity from all over the world that were there for whatever we were. I can't remember uh, some Marian thing, and we got up and for breakfast, and we're all in this large cafeteria. And the the head of the organization asked a bishop to open the morning with grace. And uh, it was a, a, a an African bishop from a very, very, I don't know if it's the right word, deep part of Africa that where there was a lot of missionary movement. And he stood to say grace for us in his rough English, said, Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. And it just cracked me up. It is the prayer which every Catholic in the world knows in every language. <laughs> I mean, there's the unity of our of our faith. Uh, in this passage, you know, I had a problem with this passage as a Calvinist because I didn't believe that God somehow desired all men to be saved because I believed in limited atonement. God in his sovereignty, if, if, if there's somebody for whom Christ died that isn't saved, that says something wrong with, these, with the total sufficiency of his... Of his, of his death. Uh, of his death. So we had to come, we had to fudge it a little bit right. to say that Christ only died for those for whom he died. So we had to fudge this passage. That's interesting that the Mormons had a problem with it and the Calvinists had a problem with it. And again, it's our tradition that we look through as opposed to actually seeing what the Bible says. Let's try and get on to the next passage if you want, because I wanted to make sure we could at least touch on, we maybe not get them all in, but let's... Let's look at the Acts 2, 42 and 43 passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now this is the the important passage of the first gathering of converts after Simon Peter's first sermon. And again, as a Mormon, did this... Was this a nutshell of describing how you understood Mormonism, or was it one that you kind of ignored? It, it, again, it was. It was. Um, uh, I, I think for me, uh, um, 
I look, I look at this in a couple of lenses. One, uh, the, as you probably know now, looking at it after I've studied it for many years, this is what's called the classic catechesis. You know, you have yeah. all four elements of, of our catechism here. Um, and I think what was most uh, reading this uh, previously uh, is the the breaking of the bread was never <laughs> a uh, any sort of uh, allusion to anything other than you know table fellowship. They had a snack, <laughs> something like that. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I think that that was um, understanding that, and of course that. Immediately, when you understand that, especially when you see it elsewhere, like when you look at, uh, I think it's in Luke, uh, on the road to Emmaus, uh, it's the same. You know, they didn't they their eye didn't they? Jesus was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, mm-hmm. which is one of the uh, even a more stronger allusions to the Eucharist. So I, I, this passage, I think, was, um, uh, you know, was interesting to me because uh, it. it it, it it talks about what did the community do, and, and they didn't just simply preach and baptize. They were there was already a liturgical life. There was already sacraments that were being celebrated uh, from very early on, and um, that wasn't something that um, that I had a, a great deal of appreciation for um, as a Mormon. Um, we we did have what they call ordinances uh, in the Mormon Church, um, and they they were rituals, um, but they, they were, uh, as the word ordinance says, they were done at the command of, you know, I think we would say the Lord. But there wasn't any sense that those ordinances gave life or affected any. You know, there was any, there was no understanding of of of, of grace uh, being imparted through a sacrament. That that was no way. Right. Uh, it was a, an outward sign that maybe we engaged in, but it didn't have any um, any more meaning beyond that. Uh, so that was um, that was why I I focused in on this passage. And again, I've found, like with so many of the people we work with, that depending on what tradition you assume, you go back and then you read the scriptures and somehow look it through those lenses. And if you're a congregationalist, well, then you look back here and you try and kind of find congregationalism uh, or an Episcopal structure. But I think particularly if you assume that that there was some kind of liturgy in which we have proof of, then this makes all kinds of sense in the context of the early liturgies that were really a continuity from the Jewish church into the early church. It wasn't an abrupt break, and then everything was started from scratch. No, there was this great continuity. Let's take another break, Albert, and then we'll come back and, and cover your one or two of your last passages for us in the time we have remaining. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Albert Holder. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1 800 664 5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Albert Holder, former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint member. He was born into the church. His dad was a missionary. And we're just looking at some of the scriptures that were key to his own journey to the church. Which of the two you want to jump on just to make sure we get it in, Albert? Well, I think they, we can do them somewhat together. They're, okay. they, they're sort of the same of the same topic, which is the importance of sacred tradition. All right. First Acts chapter 20, verse 35, 
In all things, I have shown you that by so toiling, you must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And then let's just throw in 2 Timothy 2, 2. Uh, and this is Paul writing to Timothy. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to the faithful to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right, now, did you deal with these of the Mormon or just kind of run away from them? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't deal with them at all. Um, and in fact, I remember having a conversation about the first one. Uh, and this is just sort of a classic uh, uh, maybe example of just looking uh uh, the looking askance at tradition uh, is not being is either second-rate revelation or you know just you know the words of men uh, and being challenged by this passage because of course you can't find Jesus say that anywhere in the Gospels uh, and so it, it was sort of a I remember someone saying to me so if, if tradition isn't important then what is Paul what is uh, what is Paul talking about here because he clearly is remembering something that Jesus said. And he's passing it on to his listeners uh, many years, you know, years later, or yeah. a few years later, anyway. Uh, and well, that's, in fact, that would have been not Paul having heard it, but somebody told him, right? Exactly. Jesus said this, right? And then Paul passing it on, passing it on, right? Right. right. So um, it, it's sort of a it's it's a it's an example of the living tradition mm-hmm. happening within Scripture, um, and so you know, again, once my kind of my eyes were open to that and and this gets us even into this other one about and this is just kind of only just an example but uh he says what you have heard from me before many witnesses and again it's it's a hearing um and once i began to learn uh you know that the bible and you know this when you really think about it but you, you don't know it in another way because you're not willing to really think about what the ramifications are meaning once you appreciate the fact that Jesus spent all his time preaching and calling a group of disciples together, and then within that group, a group of apostles that he gave special powers to 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 do to lead a church. Never writing a word, yep. you know, maybe the word in the sand, right? That's you know the one thing he wrote. You, you, the the re, his example of of the living teaching authority of the apostles and the teaching that, that and he gave them and then, and then the power to teach and go out and proclaim that word um, was a living tradition uh, that I you know that, that did get written down you know eventually but it, it it's 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 not happening it's it's not like Jesus his first act was to call a group of scribes and say, "Okay, guys, you got to get this right. Yeah, we're all going to sit down because when we're going to write when it we out. Die, the thing that's going to carry this whole thing right. is going to be a book. Right. Right. He didn't say that. No, he yeah. said it's going to be witnesses to what they've heard. Yeah. And so when I looked at, of course, the first passage just kind of affirming that reality that the importance of tradition, and then the second passage, which is Paul telling Timothy, yeah. go out and. And preach what you've heard, because that's uh, based on that authority of that teaching that you've received. You will go out and bring others t- to me, and then find others who can hear what you have to say, so, and that they themselves can remember and pass it on to others, so that they can pass it on to others, and right. it's come all the way down right. to us. I mean, that's right. really that. Right. You know, and this is such a key point in terms of re- realizing the trustworthiness of the living tradition, because if you don't accept that. In the end, I believe that you have to end up setting Scripture aside as untrustworthy. Because if you don't accept that, what you recognize is, number one, the book of Matthew. Tradition has it that was one of the apostles. Number two, Mark. Tradition has it he learned it from Peter. Right. So secondhand. Third, Luke he admits it himself. He wasn't there. Paul doesn't know it. So he has to go out and collect what's been said and put it down for Theophilus. So it's almost third hand. So when people study Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and compare the stories, they don't always align chronologically. Something's said a little differently. Right. If you don't trust 
that living tradition is the source, then you've got to do what higher critics are always doing. Which source put it there? What was their reason? What are their motives? Which of these verses are really Jesus speaking? And then pretty soon you're left with nothing. And that's what you have in the Jesus seminar. There's just nothing left that you can trust. And you end up with relativism. But it's the beauty of the living tradition that, that allows us to say that Jesus did indeed say, it is more blessed to give than receive, even though that wasn't reported in the Gospels. That, but Paul had picked it up from somebody, and then it changes our life. Definitely. But in Mormonism, you had a tradition, right? We did have a tradition. It was uh, about 130 years old <laughs> uh, by the time I was involved in it. Right. Um, you can't escape it. So, yes, you, you, you know, once you— once you begin to look at this, you know, clearly, um, the idea of a, of a tradition happening in any any religious body, of course, is very natural. Um, but I think what's happening here is that the the the, um, the as you said the the trustworthiness, which is you know a guarantee of the Holy Spirit, uh, that this apostolic tradition was being preserved um, and um, and kept. Uh, for for the next generations, and you you find examples of that um, not only as you see how the tradition was developed, but even at, at how Scripture kind of came out of that tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in in one sense, obviously, you know, Scripture is the Word of God. But when you go back and you see, um, when you look at like when we found like modern um, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and right. all, all these changes, you know, that we found, and you and you really look and you say, you know, there were certainly some you know typographical things that needed to be cleaned up, but by and large, the Word of God had Key. been preserved. Yeah, yeah. So. and um, even this letter that you you chose, Second uh, Timothy. I mean, when Paul wrote that, there's no evidence that he thought he was writing scripture. He's just writing a letter to Timothy to help Timothy be a better bishop. That's what he was writing. And uh, it comes down today because it's a part of that wider tradition, oral and written, as he talks about in 2 Thessalonians. Albert, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate that, and and God blessings on you and your family and your work as a lawyer up in Ann Arbor, and especially as your work with Catholic organizations, helping them fulfill their mission. So thank you for doing that. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of uh, Deep in Scripture. It's great to have someone like Albert on the program that's come a long way into the church and helps us appreciate this great church that we have. It's, It's a piece of treasure that we can't take for granted. So God bless. See you next week.